paper just pushed it through. Baylor is now up by six goals. Hello, and welcome to the How to Play Quidditch podcast. I'm your host, Alejo Enriquez. If you're listening to this and you have no idea what Quidditch is, uh, I'll just tell you real quick. It's a real sport. It's a, a team sport that's based on a fictional sport from the Harry Potter books and movies. Um, no knowledge of the Harry Potter version of the game is required. Uh, it is a real sport that actual human beings play all over the world. It is a full contact co-ed team sport. It's often compared to rugby, but it has a lot of similarities to other sports involved, especially dodgeball, uh, basketball, football. It's a, it's, a, it's a great blend of other, other sports, and it's a lot of fun. If you've never seen Quidditch played before, um, this is not really a good way to learn what the game looks like because uh, most people are very visual people, kinesthetic learners. Uh, me describing what's happening isn't really going to help you. So if you have not seen Quidditch play before, uh, you can go ahead and pause this podcast and roll over to the website howtoplayquidditch.org. Let me spell out the word for you, Quidditch, if you don't know, Q-U-I-D-D-I-T-C-H. So the whole website is howtoplayquidditch.org. And this podcast is actually kind of a supplement to that website um, because that website, How to Play Quidditch, will actually show you what Quidditch is like, how to play it, where teams are located, how to start teams, and so forth. And this podcast is kind of uh, going to instead give you a little more flavor of the game. And Because and, what I'm going to do in this podcast is interview people from around the world who play Quidditch. And and uh, every episode, we'll talk about some aspect of the game, how to play it, how to play it well, how to improve, uh, you know, um, hopefully give you some things to think about. So the target audience for this podcast isn't really someone who's never played before. If you're listening to this and you've never seen it, uh, Quidditch played, you know, you gotta gotta roll over to YouTube first and look at it. Or, you know, if there's a team around you and maybe they've recruited you and they sent you to listen to this podcast, maybe that's a, an ideal scenario. Um, so someone who wants to play, who's who's learning the game, maybe you've been playing for a few months already, um, maybe even if you've been playing for a few years. You might still get some good stuff out of this uh, this podcast. My hope is that even experienced people who've been playing for years will enjoy this podcast, uh, enjoy listening to the interviews, and maybe find new things to think about. And uh, and of course, always uh, I am open to feedback. So you can always uh, go to the website and use the contact information at howtoplayquidditch.org, or you can tweet me at how to play quid. And the character limit didn't get didn't get to fit Quidditch in there. Q U I D, just how to play Quid. Um, so uh, I just want this to be uh, an an open learning experience for as many people as possible. So uh, every episode is going to have a theme, and uh, that theme is driven largely by the guest. And every episode will have a guest. It's never just going to be me talking for an hour straight. I promise you that. I know as much as I love the sound of my own voice, uh, that is not what people want to listen to. I'm sure. So that's. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing people, at least one. Hopefully you know, hopefully, some episodes will have more than one interviewee. Um, I may get some of my teammates from Victoria Quidditch to come on and co-host with me. You know, you get to meet them too. That'll be fun. So this is, I'm going to go ahead and just talk about this first episode that you're listening to right now. Um, uh, this is the inaugural episode of the How to Play Quidditch podcast. So I'm going to start talking about uh, the general themes of the game, how to actually, in the kind of the broadest sense of the word, how do you play Quidditch? What is a, 
what is the overall idea of the game? Not I'm going to read the rules to you. You can get the rules off the website if you want, but a little more of just philosophy. How do you put a team together that can actually look competitive and play this game? Um, it, I'm going to try not to get too abstract. Uh, hopefully, we'll see how I do. Um, and uh, I want to. I wanted very much since I had the idea for this podcast for the inaugural episode to feature uh, a very a very good friend of mine who I've known for a very long time and as a man I respect very much. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring him on. So uh, this is the technical director of the Eighth Man, which is a uh, Quidditch website. He's the assistant coach of the San Francisco Argonauts, and he's the former captain of the Silicon Valley Scroots. He is Kevin Olsey. Welcome to the show. All the pretty girls on a Saturday night. So I call your name. Thanks for coming on the show, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, for those for those of you guys who don't know Kevin, uh, he went to Harvey Mudd College, just like I did. He was a senior when I was a freshman. Isn't that right? Uh, try the reverse. Or, damn, I, I'm smart. I'm so awake today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i was to- no well he was just he was yes actually uh he was really a lot taller than me maybe that's why um taller than everyone i, remember- I do recall you thought i was a senior which is funny because you thought everybody was freshmen well well you know um being at harvey mud college for for four years can instill a certain arrogance in some people um i just remember my first interaction with kevin finding out he was from phoenix it was just a one, two pause moment in my head. And I was like, do your friends ever stand in your shade? <laughs> and of course, Kevin instantly just, yes. No yes, further comment on the subject. It, it happens not in Phoenix too, as it turns out. I believe that. But somehow just being in Phoenix just made that jump to the forefront of my mind. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Something that, about that's this. That's one of the many useful services I offer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Something about the sun being a deadly laser. Um, all right. oh, that's awful. <laughs> so um, I have a couple questions that I'd like to always ask my new guests. Um, and when I say new guests, I mean people who haven't appeared on the show before. And uh, this will, uh, you know, get let the audience get to know you a little bit, and also kind of get to know the uh, the Quidditch community. Um, just just things that have happened in Quidditch before. So, uh, first question for you, Kevin. Uh, what is a moment of personal triumph for you in Quidditch? A moment of personal triumph in Quidditch? Um, probably the easiest one that jumps out to mind for me is going to be our first tournament win. Because I had been playing for a couple of years, and we had been second best in the area at best. Um, ah, so you, you you mean winning the entire tournament championship? Winning, yeah. Sorry, sorry. Taking home the trophy. Oh, yeah. Uh, because the first tournament I ever played in, uh, we had a three-team tournament between uh, us, Silicon Valley Scroots, uh, Cal, and San Jose State. Uh-huh. Uh And we got third place out of those three teams. Uh, this <laughs> is 2011, I want to say, so a long, long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but San Jose State was nice and made sure they had a trophy for every team. Uh, so it was the first trophy we ever got. That's such a millennial move, but getting a participation trophy. Well, so, but you can imagine how much it galled me to have a third-place trophy in a tournament with three teams. And so I had been begging Sam Fishgrund, who was my co-captain at the time, 
over like, can we please get rid of this? Can we please destroy this? Whatever. Uh, and uh, he 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 finally made the deal with me that if we ever actually win a tournament, that we can destroy the trophy. Uh, uh-huh. So we, we fought through. It was just like a round robin trophy, but at the end, there were the the last two teams that were three and zero were us and Lost Boys. Uh, this was Tony Rodriguez's first tournament with them. Oh, wow. And they, to be fair, had a pretty undermanned roster at the time as well. Um, and we have a super close game. Uh, I think it's 50 to 40 uh, in their favor. And Sam Fishbrun comes back as our off-pit speaker oh, back in the day. Oh, yes, um, the good old days. And he manages to come back with the snitch, and we win 70 to 50 and win the tournament. And there's there's a couple of really nice pictures, like, right from that moment where it's like, holy crap, I'm so happy right now. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so so we got together after the tournament as a team, and we beat the shit out of that trophy. <laughs> third place won. The very space trophy, obviously. Uh, I'm, de- I'm detecting a couple themes real quick I want to pick out on here. One is that it seems like when a team is in its first tournament, it tends to go poorly. Which is I I can say from personal experience definitely happens. I'll say it's not wrong. It also isn't. I mean, honestly, it was most of our first tournaments. I got in trouble for tackling because it was Quidditch, not a val- not Valentine's Day or something. I, nobody knew what they were doing at the time. <laughs> um, oh. pe- people get upset about some stuff now, but those of us who played five six years ago, we've seen some shit. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. I believe it. The other thing I want to point out for newer listeners or for people who haven't been playing Quidditch for five years, uh, the snitch used to be able to run and hide from like literally just leave the field and like go hide on the campus. This made a lot more sense back when it was only played on college campuses, but now it's actually played in arenas. And so they, they did away with that. But at the time, Sam Fishgrund, who, if I recall, is one of the best off pitch seekers back when that was a thing would go and, track down the snitch hiding in the dorms or something and like pull the snitch and, and come back with it. I mean, it was hard to say that anyone was a best off pitch seeker because it was such a luck thing, but true. Sam was very, very good in the way, like he actually would like watch snitches early in the tournament and like get a sense on where they liked to go and things like that. And then would use that whenever mm. he happened to come up against them. Ah. Uh, but that we were later knocked out of World Cup on, I believe, the last competitive off-stitch oh, catch in American play. I remember uh, something I, about that. Oh, that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, the team we were playing was a better team than us. They deserved to win. But but we were giving them a fight, and it was still a little bit sad because it was the I would say it was Sweet 16. It was the furthest we ever got. Oh, man. Um, and it was a lot of fun, but it was, it was, it was great to get there. Yeah. But there's a little bit of irony in that a team that for a long time really benefited for off-pitch snitch catches getting knocked out by the last one. <laughs> the, I, I remember that because I remember seeing, I think, in the some post somewhere that you guys had gotten knocked out on an off-pitch snitch pull. And I was just like, Sam, they needed you. Oh, that stings. It's okay. Uh, Sam built us out enough times in the past. <laughs> it's what he does. All right, so the next question I have to get to know you is, uh, what is the uh, most epic Quidditch moment you ever bore witness to without being directly involved in as a, as a spectator or on a live stream or something like that? 
but spectator obviously is better because it sinks in more. Yeah. Um. World. I, I mean, there's a few different ones that come to mind. Um. I think at the time, the World Cup eight finals. Mm. And admittedly, I was involved in that. I was a referee, but that doesn't really count. Yeah, yeah, that, was, that's not, yeah. Let's, we can discount that. This was between Lone Star and uh, University of Texas. Yep, Texas and, Yeah, and it was just it, like it was just an incredible game from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and slow playing was really first starting to become a major thing that a lot of teams were doing, and it had affected a couple of other high-profile games. It was just a super hype game to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't there in person for, like, Ball State, Texas uh, the next year mm-hmm. when Ball State defeated the three-time reigning champions, which I think would be an easy answer for someone who happened to be there. Yeah. Uh, given, there's, given, like, the historical momentousness of that yeah, occasion. Yeah, there, there's film of that, and the camera starts shaking when the snitch gets pulled. Like, literally, you can tell the crowd is going nuts. It was unexpected, to say the least. Yeah. Also hard to understand. I thought that Tyler Walker wasn't a well-known player before that, but it definitely kind of launched him as a household name in the Quidditch community mm-hmm. if he wasn't already. Yeah, absolutely. And even less momentous, but I just remember one of the first times I was like, holy crap, I just saw that. <laughs> uh, way, way back in the day, uh, I was at the first ever Mardi Gras Cup uh-huh. in Baton Rouge. And I was snitch refing a game that Texas A&M was playing with. And uh, this is back when Eric Wilroth, who most people know now as a Lone Star player, played for Texas A&M. Yeah. And at one point, the snitch kind of goes down to block him, and Eric full-scale jumps the snitch. Oh, my God. And, like, reaches between his legs and pulls the snitch. And just, like, having that happen, like, five or six feet in front of me was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so completely inconsequential. Like, it didn't matter at all over the course of the turn, but it was super cool. <laughs> Wait, so did he actually vault that as a seeker? Did he vault the snitch? Is that what you're saying? Oh, he, he jumped the snitch full stop. That's crazy. Wow, that's that's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. remember hearing, I think it was, I, I know that I don't know people as well as I'd like to because I know Molly Lensing and, and Eric Woolroth were on A&M, but now they're on Lone Star and so forth. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. All right, last question for uh, for Kevin here. Who is someone in the Quidditch community that you look up to? Um, I suppose it kind of depends on what sort of thrust you're going for. Um, I don't think as a play, at least like when I was an active player, I don't think there was anyone that I super looked up to because I never considered myself someone that was going to be like completely outclassed by anyone in mm-hmm. my particular role. Uh, obviously, there were better players than me. Um, and especially later on as I fell off, as my athleticism began, as injuries began to sap what faint impression of athleticism I ever had. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I mean, 
I've always super respected the way that uh, Augie treat like like plays the game, treats the game like like as a leader. Like I've always been really really impressed by him. Mm-hmm. Um, from a non-playing thing, I think anyone who tries to deny the sheer amount of effort and will Ethan Sturm has put into this sport is unbelievable. Do people because actually do that? Is, <laughs> oh, oh, I. I, I I mean, it, it was a running joke because I, I don't think she actually knew what she was talking about. Um, but after Nationals this year, Ethan made some comment about, like, and this is one of the problems with Quidditch these days and, like, why Quidditch is dying and things like that. And this girl just responds to Ethan with, like, well, have you ever do- have you done anything to try to help it? <laughs> Which I guess is, is, a, is a natural reaction if you have no idea who he is and what he's done. Like it's it's reasonable, but in context, it's like reaching into a tiger's cage with a bunch of meat in your hand and not expecting your hand to get bitten off. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it was not. I'm sure the, the greatest response. Like Ethan, like was one of the foundational members of IQA's gameplay team, which when it was founded was called the League Management Council. Uh-huh. Uh, back in, I want to say, summer of 2011. Uh, and literally, every, and I mean, I was one of those people, too. Literally everybody who worked for that group, absent Sarah Neeling, who somehow is still there, uh, has moved on at this point. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was there for a really long time before he got forced out of uh, the IQA because of his now rather infamous South Carolina is going to World Cup be pissed about it article uh but he was forced out um as he had divided loyalties between eighth man and the iqa and i mean he founded eighth man he did a bunch of work then he founded moq like that guy has done so much for the sport Mm -hmm. that it's i people give him a lot of crap because he can come across negative but in reality like he comes across as honest which, which very frequently is treated as negative in this sport, but in terms of people who have done more for this sport than anybody else, I do not think there is anyone. Fair enough. That, and it was definitely it, there's definitely an art to being uh, direct and honest um, and also being tactful that is that not everyone has. And I'm, from what you're saying, maybe he does. I haven't interacted personally with Ethan very much, but what you're describing, I can easily understand someone not not prepared for honesty to receive it as negativity or or bluntness even if it's even if it's being delivered tactfully which i, I, don't, I don't know i don't even think it's that bad i think people just have thin skin but what do i know I um i also have very thick skin so stuff isn't going to come across as bad to me as it went to others that's fair that's fair enough yeah i uh i i i uh definitely try and be honest with people but in my daily work as a as a college professor, it's definitely there's different expectations for me versus engaging with people in a volunteer activity than as uh, a work environment, basically. So I can understand that that would be a challenging. But so Ethan Sturm, and uh, for those of you who didn't catch Ke- uh, Kevin's earlier comment as to Augustine Monroe, who everyone calls Augie, if you haven't heard of him, now you have. Um, those are uh, those are two uh, luminaries of the Quidditch community, absolutely, and. Uh, very good answers, I feel. All right, so uh, let's get a little bit into how to play Quidditch, as they say. So uh, I'm going to open with this question for Kevin, uh, and I may I may interject as well, but I'd like to hear your your take on it. 
How would you explain how to play Quidditch to to someone? Which I'm sure you've done. I think we probably all have. How would you explain? <laughs> <laughs> how would you explain how to play Quidditch to someone who's watching it for the first time and they don't know what they're seeing? How do you explain how to play it briefly? Um, I tend to explain it sort of as a mixture of rugby and dodgeball. In that, I think you get. I mean, I think the Quaffle game somewhat naturally translates towards rugby, although obviously there are a lot of pieces that are different about it, mm. but it gets people in the right frame of mind. And then I think the beating game tends towards dodgeball. Mm. Um, and then I'll always, put, like, if it's a new spectator and they're just kind of sitting down watching it the first time and they ask me, like, I will also usually then point out, like, so if you see the beaters and you get hit by a dodgeball, you have to drop anything you're holding, run back, and touch your hoops. Because that's the, I mean, that's really the thing that unifies those two positions right there. Yeah. So when I'm trying to give an overview, I don't mention that. Of like, if someone's literally watching it and trying to follow it and I'm trying to help them follow it, that's usually what I'm going for. That's a good idea. Yeah, to help them focus on something specific, you can always point at that player, watch they're about to get hit with a dodgeball or something like that. Yeah, Quidditch can be yeah, very no, overwhelming. Definitely. Very overwhelming to see for the first time. Um, and to play I, even I, more I, so. Also, I think the thing is that unlike most sports where there's usually a single focal point, and so it's pretty easy to know, oh, I follow that ball around. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of stuff to watch on a Quidditch pitch at any given time. And even like people who are relatively seasoned players will sometimes miss things because they're watching other pieces of the field that looks like they might be interesting. Yeah. And I mean, absolutely. it's like any other, like, even if there were only one ball, it's like any other sport, like interesting stuff happens away from the ball. If you're watching football or basketball or things like that, it's just yeah. stuff that tends to be a little more subtle and a little less obvious. If you don't come from backgrounds in those sports or don't have uh, extensive backing in those sports. Yeah. Yeah, you know what, that almost makes me think of, uh, this is commonly shown in psychology classes, so those of you who have taken psychology, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's a great video going around where these people in white shirts and people in black shirts, and you're passing balls to each other, and you're asked to count how many times the people with the white shirts pass the ball to each other. And you count, and it's like 10 or 12 or something, it's like a 15 second video. And then afterwards, like, you know, people will ask, did you see the gorilla? And no one knows what you're talking about. If you watch it again, if you just watch the whole thing, a guy in a black gorilla suit just walks right through the middle of the crowd, does like a pose and walks off, and no one ever notices him because they're too focused on one part. And it literally happens right in front of their eyes. So for those of you who don't know... It's not a bad thing. Like It simplifies it for you so that you can track it. But it's one of those things you go back like, how did I miss this? <laughs> and and if you don't know what I'm talking about, like you probably think I'm crazy. Like I would, well now I've spoiled it for you. But if you actually watch like this video like on YouTube and you count how many times the people with the white shirts pass the ball around, almost everyone misses the gorilla. It's so amazing because um, that that really is what a Quidditch is like. So much is happening, and if you watch the quaffle, which it makes sense to watch the quaffle. It's suddenly just this, this maelstrom, this tornado of dodgeballs coming out of nowhere to hit people, and you don't know what happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, people people are never prepared. Yeah, the, the intensity. And playing beater is even crazier because you have to read oh, the whole I, thing I, the I, whole time. 
I, I never start people as um, beaters when I have them playing. We used to do it like right when we were starting for the first time. Yeah, someone has to do it, <laughs> and, and absolutely not. Yeah, it's I've I've uh, I have had a couple players who shown a natural propensity for beater, and after a, a, a few weeks or a month, even I'll say, "All right, you want to be a beater? That's fine, but I'm going to train you real good, and you're still going to be terrible the first time you play." Um, <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's very demanding just how much happens on the field and it's, um, I would, I would, I I think also there's a big, there's a big difference from personal experience. I'd say there's a big difference in explaining the sport to someone who knows a lot about sports versus someone who doesn't. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I, I think. I, and I, I mean, I, I run into this issue this summer, even where you just like, you come from a background, you assume that everybody has some degree of grounding in something that seems so basic to you. It doesn't even occur to you that someone isn't going to know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And you say something, you're like, All right, cool, you understand that? It's like, yeah. What was that first word you said? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, for people who are experienced in like, you know, cause, cause you get this, especially here in Texas where I live, you'll run into people and you'll say, Hey, what sports did you play? And people will say all of them. So with people like that, I like to try and frame Quidditch a little bit differently than, Oh, it's rugby, but it's also like basketball. But then there's like dodgeballs. Like instead, my favorite thing to say to people who, who get sports is that the beaters, it's basically like football except there's no downs a continuous play but instead of linemen you have these dodgeball throwing people because linemen are ineligible receivers they can't catch passes and run and get score you never see linemen get scores except if they're put in uh you know on on as uh the eligible receiver tackle ultimate whatever nonsense like almost never like most offensive linemen have like no scores no yards no nothing they just get they just push people around and it's kind of the same thing in quidditch the beaters instead of their size they use dodgeballs but they have to protect their teammates and clear a path for their teammates to score so and i find that to be philosophically very helpful but only if they really really know sports yeah i can kind of see that it's it's not a way i've ever really thought about it but i can i can totally see that Mm -hmm. And it's so um, it's so weird for people to think about because one of our best beaters is a, is a girl. She's like five foot nothing, and uh, but she's fast and she's tough. She she would she wouldn't last three seconds playing offensive lineman. She would she would literally die. Um, but as a beater, she's incredible because she can catch, she can throw, she can cover the field. Like that's what you need in a beater: someone who can catch, who can throw, who can read the field, and, and can run from place to place. Like and she protects her teammates. She runs up with the bludger, covering the quaffle care all the time. That's almost like her natural inclination. So, no, yeah, definitely. And I think I think it's a very very underappreciated aspect of people. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Was it from the Blind Side that movie where something like somehow they measured the guy's protective instincts? Which I don't know. I don't know if that's actually a thing or not. But I guess if you could measure that, you would want a high protective instincts rating in a beater, would you not? Uh, yeah, definitely. 
I don't know. Is that is that a thing? I mean, it was in the movie, but I don't know if that's how it works. I'm not familiar with it. <laughs> I, I I watched half of the movie once when it was on cable. Okay. Uh, well, well, those listeners who know what I'm but talking I'm, about right now, they're like, yeah, yeah, he knows what. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Judge me all you like. Don't care. Well, no, Lola, Lola, and I mean, I think one of the things is like, there's a lot of interesting ways that you can visualize Quidditch mentally to help you understand it. And it's not that there's one that's correct or not. Like, I have my own way of visualizing beaters where I think of them as. And I, I guess as somebody who comes from a tech-oriented uh, school as well, you'll, you'll you'll appreciate this. But I almost imagine them as like a pressure, like vector field of pressure. And if you like read the uh, beaters, the beaters have like strong vectors pushing out from them. And yes. so if you like look at it from above, you can kind of see the path through that mm-hmm. weaves the pressure in. But I also realize that I'm weird, and no one else is going to think of it. Yeah, oh, I know what you're talking about. I do something similar in my mind, which and we're just outing ourselves as enormous nerds. I imagine like a color map or where a beater's standing, like where red, it starts like red and gets blue. And like, that's the color map is like, yeah, like a heat map of like the the area they threaten now versus within within the next one to two to three seconds. And like when they run, it forms like an oval in front of them. And then when they stand still, it's more and like, like a... a beater that's being contested by another one is exerting less pressure or pushing out less heat than, right. No, like it's, it's totally a good way to envision beaters. It's just kind of a weird abstract thought if you're not wired that way. Right. But I think it's really helpful to, 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 when you look at a beater to do these drills when, because teams always do practices where there's a beater and then chasers passing the ball around that you need to kind of, understand how to get the beater to bite to either throw at you or to like come up too close to you so you can pass to where they they can't reach in time and and then on the other side we train our beaters a lot in the turn beat where you actually put plant your your back foot and pivot onto it and throw to a target right behind you that you only acquired almost very and the, the shorter that time takes to acquire the target the better you can cover the area around you i would say if you're running like a drill that works really well for stuff like that, and I assume you run something similar, is effectively just a two chaser on one beater drill. Yeah. Because you end up in a situation where if the beater lets the first person with the qualifier get too close, they'll just shoot and score. Yep. So they have to go out to some degree to match that person. That's right. But then that means like the person driving with the qualifier is trying to bait the throw out before they pass, and if they can't, they're trying to make the pass accurate enough and quick enough that the person can catch and score quickly, yeah. which means the beater has a very limited window to turn, plant, find target, throw. Right. Yes, absolutely. And you'll find beaters who are phenomenal with that, and you'll find beaters who have no idea what they're doing with that. Mm-hmm. And it's not even like a particularly, like, there are great beaters who are awful at that, and there are mediocre beaters who are great at that. <laughs> that is true. There are so many different things. Yeah, it's, it's totally just like a completely isolated skill set that is, I mean, super helpful to have if you can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually kind of leads me into my next topic I wanted to talk about because uh, I feel like playing a chaser, and I think a lot of people who especially play other sports kind of get the chaser position pretty quickly. You you run, you pass, you catch, you dunk, you shoot, 
it's very similar to basketball without the dribbling, rugby, football, running back, wide receiver. Like it all makes sense. But Beater is such a such a it's its own animal. There's nothing like it really in any other sport. The closest is dodgeball, but even in dodgeball, you know, it's you don't have the same considerations. And and I'm personally I, I enjoy the beater position very much. I don't I don't think I'm the greatest beater. Uh and I think one thing about me is that I love going against other beaters. I like the the duel, the contact, the 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 squaring off, and I try and win that all the time. And I am actually not that good at what you talk, talk about that turn beat, right? That actually I've I practiced it like crazy, and I'm still only kind of okay at it. Okay, uh, and that duel is super dangerous too. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. like, like, like I. I've had games where I have scored goals based off one bad step by a beater. Mm-hmm. Like I'll be in a position where I'm sort of waiting for something and I'll see their beater take one step in the wrong direction and I'm gone. Yeah, absolutely. And that happens all like if you're someone who's out there, I'm just going to like outbeat beaters all the time. Like that's a thing you're going to get sucked into. Mm-hmm. And unless you're blessed with a phenomenally well executing defensive chaser squad, you're going to leap goals hard. Oh, yeah. Yeah, chaser on chaser is very, very challenging defense to make. Um, so here's one thing to think about. I think it's, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about the beater position because it is so involved and complex and stuff. What What are the different things that you need to be good at to be a good beater? And, and also recognize, as you just said, there are different kinds of good beaters, and there's beaters who are good at different things and can be valuable to their team without being well-rounded. Uh, field awareness is absolutely number one. Mm-hmm. Like there, there have been people who are pretty good chasers. So, for instance, like a lot of people would list Max Havlin as one of the better chasers. Sorry, one of the best beaters that there is in the game right now. Uh-huh. Uh, Max chased for a long time. Oh, really? It wasn't until World Cup seven year that he switched over to beating. Oh, I didn't know that. And oh, cool. Max is great. Like Max is an athlete and he's able to exert pressure all over the field. Mm-hmm. But like any really good beater, his best aspect is his field awareness. Um, Mario Nasta for RPI who plays with Havlin and MLQ on, on Boston Night Riders. Yeah. Uh, also started out his time in RPI as a chaser. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people get there and I think it can be, there's so many different things to evaluate and prioritize as a beater mm-hmm. that like like being able to take in all of that information, process it quickly and make good decisions is the single most important thing you can have as a beater. Yeah. I I would definitely agree with you. So here's a question then before we get into the other thing you need to be a good beater, because I think field awareness is absolutely uh critical, like you say. What um what is it that someone can do to get better at that versus how much of that might just be inborn? Um, part of it is just an experience thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think like as you play the game more, you understand the way people are going to move. You understand like, okay, how much time is this person going to need to be able to get into a scoring position from where they are now? And can I slide a beat in that window or... Do I need to hold on to my bludger? I mean, so honestly, just playing, and I know that's rough to say to a rookie or someone just coming in who's trying to, like, yeah, I'm going to be a great beater. How do I do this? Oh, just play for a few years. <laughs> and I mean, 
just that. Like, you have to play for a few years. You have to play intelligently. I know one of the things that really helped our beer game many, many years ago was we sat down as a group. I mean, this is before there was any real accepted beater strategy. Yeah. Um, but I, like, we basically went as a team, and it was, like, me, one of the other chasers who was kind of functioning as a coach, and then all the beaters. Mm-hmm. And we, like, literally, like, sat down at a restaurant, and we walked through bludger scenarios of, like, how do we want to position? What do we do when this happens? What do we do when that happens? Like, yeah. literally, we'd have, like, the salt shakers as chasers, the <laughs> pepper shakers as beaters. We'd have three different napkin holders for the different hoops. We'd use coins for the different balls. Like, I, I, I mean, but, you know, I mean, it's a little different now because you have a little bit more in terms of foundational beating and, and sort of expected fundamentals mm-hmm. that you don't, that you certainly didn't have back then. Um Another thing I'm a huge believer in yeah. is film. Is I think if you play, like, particularly, like, if you're playing a game against another team and you film it, yeah. you can uh, see a lot. Film, yeah, absolutely. On yeah. your team from that film. Mm-hmm. And, like, like, when I'm trying to watch, when I'm in, like, analysis mode, particularly, like, if it's for a team I'm coaching and I'm trying to get people feedback, a 20-minute clip of film will probably take me an hour and a half at least because I'm constantly like, like, I'll watch something, but it won't be obvious, like, okay, how did we get in this situation? And so I'll back up and I'll watch like, one of the beaters fight for 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that makes that sense. And I'll back up again and I'll watch the other beaters and I'll see how the chasers adjust themselves. And so, like, like having video and like clearly having like video that you can do any sort of analysis on where you can actually like watch how this stuff evolves can yeah. really help deepen an understanding of the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think even now I think it's a really underused tool for a lot of people. Well, it takes a lot of time and Quidditch is a volunteer sport, volunteer organization. <laughs> people have class, a lot of college students play and they have classes. Oh, and, that's totally true. Yeah. But I, I think you'll also find that a lot of the people who are higher ups in their Quidditch club are a little crazy. <laughs> are willing to dump time like that to it. Yeah. Or like if someone's super excited about it, like oh, yeah. they're also going to be willing to do that. Yeah, no question. Uh, we had one of our players who she can't really play in the summer because of medical conditions. But she's, you know, she when she asked, you know, hey, you know, I want to get better. But I just said, watch some film. We have we have the game film. We upload the Victoria game film, and she'd been watching it. She was watching and she watched the 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 Nationals film and stuff. And you know, she put in the time, and you know, it, it's reflected. You know, shout out to Holly when you hear this. You know, I see you. I see you watching <laughs> the game film. <laughs> no, like absolutely. Like I think, I think there's a point where, like, if you are a bottom tier team playing the best team in the country, you're not going to learn anything from that film. Like you're, yeah. you're you're gonna. There's going to be so many things that the other team is doing better than you on an individual play that you can't isolate or understand any of them. Yeah, definitely. But like, if you find games against teams that are like barely pushing you out of snitch range or are holding you to the upper limit or like are pushing against the upper limits of snitch range against you, you can usually learn a ton from those games. Yeah, absolutely. Because very often those games break at like a couple of plays that end up turning them. Yeah, it's crazy how big a swing you can get 
from a single like missed beat, for example, like you know one missed oh, beat yeah, and no, all no, of a sudden the game is completely on a tier, especially when the snitch is on the pitch. I'll say super with the snitch game. Like I remember, I actually think I wrote an Nathan article, not just about this, but I called this out in it. Uh, not this year, but last year in the uh, San Francisco Argonauts for Salt Lake Hive series, uh-huh. uh, a beater for the Hive named Paul Davis, uh, who's pretty much out of Quidditch at this point. But, like, at that point, like, I watched the play. Like, even before they caught the snitch as a result of it, I'm like, this is a game-winning play right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, like, he had no bludgers against Lowell. Like, he had one bludger against their two beaters – and obviously, like, in the Sitch game, all it takes is a second for someone to win the game. Yeah. And he comes in, he cross-beats with one of the San Francisco beaters, catches their beat, cross-beats with the other one, catches oh, their beat, recovers control, knocks out both of their beaters. Oh, time, wrecked. Someone catches the Sitch. And it's just like, like, this is what a game-winning play looks like. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely, that's, that's it. And, Obviously, you're not there without, like, your seeker pulling the snitch, without your chasers and your other beaters, like, having played all the way there. But, like, particularly in the snitch game, you can see, like, plays that the game just pivots around. Yeah, And sometimes the game pivots around it five seconds later. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, it's, it's... Honestly, I've always thought it's really, really interesting to see what kind of plays tend to emerge that can do things like that. And, like... Sometimes it can be like a back-breaking goal that a team didn't expect in a low-scoring game. Sometimes it can be like um, different screwed story. Uh, yeah. Western Cup five, we ended up being the very, very last team from the West to qualify for World Cup, mm-hmm. and uh, we end up winning by ten points. Oh man, uh, was that which, who was that against? That was I mean I remember that was that against the it was, was it West one. Oh, it was Westwood. Okay, okay. Uh, we, we had a pretty unfortunate tournament. We had a really good tournament, and then we broke down in a game and then just, like, never found our stuff again. Oh, yeah. Um, but, like, Merton Pine, who, who you obviously know, also went to Harvey Wood College. Yes, us. good friend. Uh, but, like, nice guy, not the most athletic person in the world, but a hard worker and is, like, a great teammate. Yeah. Like, ends up. Finding, like, picking up a ball off of the defensive play, going coast-to-coast to to score, ends up being our last goal of the tournament, and ends up being the difference between this niche catch sends us to world and niche catch sends us to overtime. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's, that's why we play the game, man. That's why we're out there. It's because we love it. And, I mean, it's one of the great things about sports in general, too, is that, like, especially as you understand things, you can see tiny moments that have giant effects. Yeah. Yeah. When I, when I started work on um, a playbook, a training manual, which is still incomplete, but um, I have dreams for it. One of the first chapters is about sports and why we even play sports. And ultimately I concluded it's because it's a, it's, it's a very human experience. It's a very much connects us to our destiny, makes us believe that our choices and our actions have meaning that, that by, by doing those extra push-ups, by running that extra distance, by actually playing and making the right choice instead of the wrong choice, there's an outcome. Like a trophy goes to one person or the other, you know, and that's, you know, that's why we play the game. It's why we watch the game. We don't know. It it provides you with little battles that have consequences for winning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Unlike in, like, war, 
yeah. the consequence for losing isn't we die, but like those things shape you and those things like help you dig in and find pieces of yourself that you didn't know you had. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Plus it's always fun to beat a rival team and to talk shit about oh, you. Oh man. Life, so, you know. Rivalries, yeah, rivalries really add a lot of flavor to any what would you say, just as a random side note, just because I'm curious, what would you say would be a couple of the biggest rivalries in Quidditch right now? <laughs> uh, right now? Yeah. Let's get current. Uh, Let's get topical. Lone Star Cavalry is shaping up to be a pretty good one. Mm. Yeah. Um, historically, there have been, like, Texas, Texas A&M used to be a really, really great rivalry, but both programs have been, while still, like, top-tier programs, not, like... They haven't stood in each other's way. Well, they might this year, if... They might this year, between those two and Texas State, with the split between college and community teams at regionals, Texas regionals, the the semifinals and the finals are going to be insane for the college side because it's going to be Texas, Texas State... Texas A&M, and, and I don't even know, I guess maybe UTSA possibly, like those four in the semis and the finals, that'll that'll bring it back, I think. That might actually bring back that college Texas rivalry. Tech. Texas Tech, yes, thank you. Texas Tech, Texas and UTSA. Oh, so Oklahoma State, if they catch a good run, I don't actually know how many of their people they still have around. But, like, like, there are clearly those three schools, but there are a lot of schools that can play at that tier, maybe not over an entire tournament, but at least – Unless they like really kick ass in recruiting or really change their program around. Yeah, every year. But a they new can year play at that level for individual games. That's all you need here. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, I was actually thinking of another one too. Um, when I asked you that, I took the t- time to think about it. I think um, Augie versus Boston is a rivalry right now. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it didn't. I don't think get, as much anymore. It didn't get to play itself out. It didn't get to play itself out as much at at, at USQ10 because Cavalry didn't didn't end up drawing. Uh, Boston QC Boston and uh, Lone Star both got upset by the Bear Sharks, uh, which was hilarious. Um, and uh, uh, but but I think that this in next week actually next weekend from this taping one week from today. Um, I think if anyone, everyone's expecting that semifinal, that left half of the bracket to be Austin Outlaws and Boston Knight Riders, and Augie was. I'm pretty offended. I hope. What was that? I'm I'm pretty offended. <laughs> How can you possibly think that Boston will emerge from the uh, superpower that is going to be San Francisco's 14 person roster oh. or whatever the heck we're? Hey man, I will be rooting for you. I will root for you hard. <laughs> Um, you know, although I do have friends on Curse also, so I, I, I do have friends on Curse also, shout out to Joshua Mansfield, um, um, but, uh, you know, and, and, uh, but yeah, you know, you guys advancing, you guys can take out Boston this year, I'll be, I'll be over the moon, but I think everyone's expecting, (laughs) I should say, you know, and honestly, Boston has only played, what, uh, five snitch range games to date? Uh, the two, or no, actually, no, I take it back. The indie games were also snitch range, I think, in the semis. Oh, so I, thought indie I think the indie games uh, in the. Played... Yeah. But, so, uh, so that, that kind of undermines my point a little bit. Sorry, what? 
They've only played one regular season since Trains game. Right. I was counting that, that Titans game. Good. Yeah. I was thinking that Titans game this year. And then last year yep. was just I think the semis and the finals. And then the first year just the, the just the finals against Titans. Augie was on four of those seven teams that held Boston snitch range and Boston still won all those games. Um so yep. So I mean it wouldn't surprise me if he if he's got a certain look what on his face. You have a player like Larry Townhouse on your team. <laughs> Shout out to Larry Townhouse. <laughs> I for those who don't get the joke, I believe Kevin's referring to uh, Harry Greenhouse, one of the greatest. God, you cracked my code. It's so subtle, too. I know. You know, I, I'm just trying to keep the listener in the know. Harry Greenhouse is uh, is a highly regarded and also absolutely terrifying Quidditch player who lives in the Boston area <laughs> and is referred to as Larry yeah. Townhouse sometimes. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, and there are other. And- you're not just competing with him. You're competing with him and Max Havlin and Mario Nasta and oh, yeah. honestly, whatever seekers they want to throw out. Like Tyler Trudeau had some nice catches. Uh, yeah, Jake Archibald. Obviously, he's like, like when he played for QCB, David Fox was a threat. Uh, I know he had a super sick grab to, I think, knock out QCB. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah. I think it was to knock out Longstar this year, actually. Um, but, like, but, like, they, no, it was to knock out QCB. It was Bear Sharks against QCB, and he got that pull. Okay. Yeah, that was epic. Um, no, that that is true. That that kind of brings uh, brings me to one other thing to think about, um, and, and I guess this can be our last topic for for today on this because we're having so much fun here. Um, it's really hard to indi- evaluate individual talent in team sports, like, and, and and especially if you listen to to football talk, because football is is probably because it has the most people on the field well not the most but it has 11 people on the field and everyone's doing their job and so it can be hard to evaluate individual talent because you're saying well this guy did the thing right but the other guy did the thing wrong but then he tried to make up for it and so so individual talent doesn't always really shine through and 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 people if you if you want to if you want to see a fun little debate you can go on the internet and search joe montana versus tom brady and and the debates over which of them was a better player, oh, you absolutely have to look at their the surrounding talent. Was it? Was that? It's not a debate. Tom Brady's better. Well, it's not close. It, I'm not saying my opinion. Um, I'm saying that I hear the San Francisco mob at my door. They're coming for me. <laughs> <laughs> they better watch out, man. So, so no, but but the, but what I'm saying is, if you if you look at it from a a talent evaluation, not just of the player, but of the, the roster around them and the coaching staff and everything like that. It's absolutely obvious to to most people who, who, who look at that big picture that Tom Brady is a superior player. But it if you look at the narrower kind of, hey, 4-0 in the Super Bowl, this and that, you know, it's, you know, a, it's a legitimate debate a lot of people hold. And so... A Quidditch player may be very Wait, good on. Wait, are you telling me that cherry picking statistics can give you the outcome you desire? Well, you know that's what I hear. Um, <laughs> so, so one question I want to throw to you then, like, and, and kind of on that topic. Obviously, you could have a great player on a bad team and so forth. But what are the things that a team can do to to foster? And, and I'm realizing now as I'm thinking about this, I totally ditched our previous topic of beating 
beating talent because basically it's the answer is field awareness and then maybe having a strong arm or whatever comes in like a distance. Oh no, there's, there's a ton, there's a ton of things to unpack that we didn't get to there. Well, you know, I really want to do is another podcast just on beating. So we'll have to save some of it for that. Um, I'm going to try and get some other, some beater and you're welcome to come on too, but you know, actually played beater and not someone who, yells at beaters for letting in goals but <laughs> well, well well i'll i'll email it to you first so you get first listen to us to the beat and i say <laughs> us beaters i'm not a good beater at all um but well i enjoy it i, I enjoy wrecking people i'm not actually like i'm not a chess player <laughs> definitely not a chess player um i don't play chess at the seven dimensional purchasey <laughs> So the last thing I wanted to talk about, which I'm desperately trying to get my mind back on track for, uh, what is what are the things that you've seen successful teams do that put their players in positions to succeed? Because we made made reference to to Harry Greenhouse or Larry Townhouse or whatever you want to call him, and he is he's he's crazy good and terrifying. And I, if you saw the look on Mason Kuzmich's face when he was snitching against him, you knew that that Harry is a force to be reckoned with. But it is absolutely true that he plays with Max Havlin. Honestly, if you saw Harry at Global after Global Games 2014 at the Denny's, you would be terrified of him. <laughs> I didn't see that. Store out. Um, <laughs> so 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 let let's let's think about this for a moment. What is it what are the things that six what are the habits of highly successful teams? Let's break it down to that for a second. Having been on some I successful mean, teams yourself. This this is going to sound obvious and a little depressing for the people who can't say this, but numbers. Mm-hmm. Like, if you think of each person as somewhat of a lottery ticket in terms of whether they'll be interested in staying with Quidditch, whether they'll be a successful Quidditch player, like, it's a crapshoot. And the more craps you shoot, the better chance you have of hitting a jackpot every now and then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's obviously part of it. Yeah. And, and like a huge part of it, like if you look at teams that have been successful, like if you look at college programs that have arrived, they're the ones that not only have like a good team, they have like a house league under them. They usually have competitive B teams. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just, I, I remember hearing rumors their first year of Texas State having like 200 people at tryouts or something like that. Oh yeah, that's and a real thing that happened. I was pretty ecstatic when we had 30 people at the first day of Argonauts tryouts this year. Mm, yeah. Um, but, like, that's not to say there aren't things that are in your power as well. I mean, though, I would argue as somebody who has no talent in it and known people who have talent in it, recruiting is absolutely a talent and a really important one at that. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, other than that, I think an emphasis on fundamentals is really important. Mm-hmm. And I think that people are very, very bad at doing that, partly because they don't really have the fundamentals codified themselves. Yeah. Like, if I play basketball, if I'm, and I mean, like, like these are these kids playing their entire lives, but, like, even in an average practice, like, I'm in the high school level, I'm going to be taking 50, 60 shots from different locations just mm-hmm. practicing shooting. Is it the most thrilling thing in the world? No, but like this sort of repetition and this sort of like focus on getting your mechanics correct is what you need to get them down so that when you're in pressure, when you're in the moment, 
your body knows, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do instead of, oh my God, this person's hitting me, what do I do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people sort of drive away from them, especially if you have people who aren't coming from a athletic background because it can be kind of boring to do the same drill for 45 minutes or an oh, hour. Yeah. But and Quidditch, time is, Quidditch practice time is valuable. A lot of teams only practice once or twice a week for two or maybe yeah. three hours if they're lucky, if they're hardcore. So you're looking at maybe six hours a week of Quidditch for a dedicated team and so a lot of this fundamentals you have to do on your own, which is boring, you know, it's, it's even harder to do it on your own. But like, if you give me a chaser who is super athletic, is like a strong, like, like as a strong player mm-hmm. has no ability whatsoever to catch the ball because they've never learned. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, this is pretty hard because most people who are athletic generally have some sort of correlation with being able to do that. Like, I would rather have an unathletic person who can position kind of smartly and has reliable hands. Yeah. And like, I don't want an entire team of those people. <laughs> you got to have a mix. You got to have your role players. <laughs> in terms of someone that I can slot in into any team, I can always slot that second one in. True. And I mean, I would rather take the first one and have teach them how to catch, mm-hmm. but you know, like, like, like just being able to reliably pass and catch the ball in Quidditch and yeah. I can't believe we're still saying this like 10 years into his existence, but is a depressingly rare skill. Well, I think that Honestly. it's very easy to do in practice when there's no pressure and you're not tired yet and it's not too hot or too cold yet. You know, you can make these attractive passes that you can't make on the run, under duress, you know, like with a I narrow think, time I think frame. That's also, though, that like a lot of people for catching, coaching comes down to, hey, catch the ball two hands. Yeah, yeah. Like, I could show you seven different ways I could be catching the ball with two hands. Right. That exactly. doesn't mean they're all good. Yes. Absolutely. I could have my hands, like, spread out in a spread eagle and clap them together as <laughs> the ball gets in. You know what that's going to cause? That's going to cause the ball bouncing off my chest to the ground as everybody looks at me weird. Yeah, that's true. It's a... Uh... I think that that some of that comes from the personal attention. So there's a bit of a, a, a catch twenty two. To be successful, you need large numbers, but large numbers make it harder to give that personal attention to each player. And let them because oh, because we're in Victoria Quidditch, we're a small program. We have maybe six people at practice sometimes, and so. But I mean, that means it gives me an opportunity to coach people on the mechanics, on the fundamentals. Um, you know, and, and when you say fundamentals, clearly catching, catching on the run, throwing, throwing on the run, throwing from stationary and throwing on the run are very different, I would say. Um, shooting the quaffle, uh, is something you can practice. I, last summer when we didn't have anyone coming to Quidditch practice, I would just put the hoop up and take shots for an hour and I have a very deadly mid-range shot because of it. So, you know, it can pay off, but you got to put in that time. What are some other couple yeah. other fundamentals you were thinking of that people need to practice uh, regularly? Defensive positioning and tackling is a huge one. Mm-hmm. Uh, both on, or on ball is where the tackling, but also off ball positioning is really important too. Yeah, because anyone who has played any systemized basketball can tell you that when you're guarding someone far away from the ball, you don't just stand next to them and follow them around. Mm. That's, that's how you get beat. Not really easy points. Yeah, but um, people don't like like people say, "Oh, go cover that man." 
and that's where the instruction stops. Yeah. Or people say, oh, go tackle that person. And the <laughs> thing is, like, tackling in Quidditch is a very, very different thing than someone who has just watched a game of NFL will oh, yeah. go tackling it. Like, uh. the hardest I've ever been hit playing Quidditch was by a former football player, but it was extremely ineffective. Like, mm-hmm. he got a huge head of start of, like, huge head of steam going, slammed into me. But because he could only use one hand in the way he did it, like, all I did was I took the force of his hit and used it to spin and go right past him and score. Yeah. Yeah, um, in like, football they teach head face up, face up for the tackle. Um, but face up one-handed, you're you're just going to slide right off that person. Um you really have, and it's very difficult for somebody to practice that face up two hands, which is a much more effective way to tackle, um, but uh, but also illegal. Yeah, but I mean, there, there are effective ways to tackle one handed too, and I think yeah. most teams and players who are good have, who are good have figured them out. Right. Exactly. But yeah, mm-hmm. I, I feel like the instruction in general is really bad about what you're telling people, and it's just hey, like oh, go tackle them. And then someone will kind of just like charge in a straight line at a person and that person takes a step to their side and that person, the defender looks really foolish because it's Mm -hmm. like, like if you're much faster or much bigger or much stronger than the person, like you can do bad technique and make it work on players that you have those advantages over. Yeah. But at some point you're going to be playing someone you don't have those advantages on. Yeah. You're going to get exposed at that point. Absolutely. Yep. That's absolutely true. What are a couple of fundamentals for beaters would you recommend? <laughs> um, Got you there. <laughs> this one's a little more difficult because I think beating, like, like and, and I mean, this is why I think beating is so hard is I think that there's less black and white things about being a beater. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being able to throw and catch, like having proper throwing mechanics for a beater is super important. Yes, Absolutely. Using the whole body turn. Um, I think being able to catch the ball is really important. Mm-hmm. I also think being able to throw on the run and being able to move about quickly is super important as a beater too. Yeah. Like, or maybe not even quickly, but maximizing the effectiveness of the steps you take mm. is really important. Yeah. Not not to drop a reference to my girlfriend who is Kiri Timbrook and remains one of the best female beaters, if not the best female beater I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. If you watch her on film, she's not super impressive. But the reason she's not is because she's not out there making like insane plays. She just never took a wrong step. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all his position. So, yeah. like, yep. <laughs> like, it was so hard to get anything by her because you could never get her out of where you wanted her to not be. Yeah. Yeah, that positioning. And I think that positioning, like what you made reference to, for chasers and absolutely for beaters also, that's something that you can't practice alone. Like you can practice for for chasing. Obviously, you can practice shots and and uh, and running and so you can't really. You need a partner to to catch unless you just chuck it in the air and catch it yourself. But uh, but you, positioning is really something you need multiple other people in order to get no, a no, sense. No, no, absolutely. For it. And yeah. I think a lot of it comes from playing, and I think a lot of it comes from proper re- retrospection. Mm, yeah. More than anything else. Even filming practice, which you know, who does yeah, that? <laughs> like, 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 just like, like, even if it's just after a play, like, say, like, have one of the, like, if you have a veteran beater playing with a new beater, yeah, or at least a beater who kind of has his head around the game but doesn't understand a lot of the subtlety, even just being like, 
hey man, so this is what I did to you. This is why this was effective. And this is why what you did was wrong. Like even doing things like that can kind of help point sink in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think it's less of a particular skill set and more of an attitude to constantly be evaluating and adjusting yourself. Yes. I, uh, my background is in martial arts, which is you, you, you probably know, but the, the, the listener may not. Um, and in martial arts, you are never done getting better. You are always improving. You, even if you get a black belt, there's many levels to the black belt, and everyone's impressed when they find out I have a black belt. But honestly, it's not impressive at all. It's only a first-degree black belt. That doesn't mean – all that means is I've mastered the basics, and it also means that I need to continue to practice my basics or else they there they'll go away and and quidditch i feel is exactly the same and i don't know that people treat it the same they don't treat it that way that it's something that you can you can practice to get better at but you have to keep practicing to stay good at and there's a lot of nuance just because now you're good at catching doesn't mean you can't get better it's not like a bunch of boxes to check it's the difference between playing a team sport and playing a pickup or intramural sport or something like that and I think maybe this should have been my first answer when you said, like, hey, what is it that really good teams have that other teams don't? Yeah. They treat it like a sport. That's true. And that doesn't come to the fact that they take it seriously. It comes to the way that they approach the game. Mm-hmm. It comes down to the way that they practice the game. It comes down to focusing on individual things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And treating it like uh, an endeavor that you can. It's just having the mentality that you can get better by practicing that it's worth it to get better by practicing uh, and, and also having the humility to, to continue to try and improve because, you know, that, that's, that's something that not everyone has. And, and honestly, because Quidditch is such a new sport and it's in, played in college mostly, I think the average Quidditch player age is probably still like, like 21 or something. It's hard for a 21-year-old just finding their place in the world to, to – to to reach a height of achievement and then humble themselves and say, but I still need to get better. Like that's difficult. That's difficult for anyone to do, and especially a 21 year old who doesn't have a 50 year old coach who's played it since they were 21 helping them because there are no there are no people who've been playing Quidditch for 30 years. Yep, there are people who are 51 who who play Quidditch, but they've only been playing it for a year. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah. So, and I prefer the word crippling lack of self-esteem to humility, but I get you. <laughs> they're those are slightly different things. That they, they one they, one can taste <laughs> like the other, probably. But uh, um, <laughs> that that we'll save that for the crippling lack of self-esteem podcast, where uh, Kevin will be doing the entire show himself. Oh, I've got that one on lockdown. <laughs> I'm teasing. Well, I'm teasing, but, you know, with good reason. Um, good times. Love you, Kevin. Um, okay, so, <laughs> what? I'm not, I'm not afraid. The listeners should know that I have love for you. What's wrong with that? <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> I don't care. You can judge me all you want. I'm older than I look, so I don't, I, I'm past the, age, I'm past the age of caring what people think if, if their opinion isn't actually important, so. <laughs> all right well i think that'll do it for our show now uh i i'm going to go ahead and call this a total success uh you, you can you can hop on that bandwagon or or wait to hear the finished product either way um your preference definitely yes there's 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 no way this doesn't go like top 10 on itunes yes oh man 
Yes, and then and then the cash will just start rolling in. That's how it works, right? Yeah. Oh, I need to get a sponsor for this show. Um, do, do, do you want to sponsor this show? Do you, do you want to send me a text right now telling me I'm awesome and I'll count that as a sponsorship? Uh, I'll sponsor this particular episode. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I meant, awesome this, I meant this episode, yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll sponsor this with some classic compliments. You're great, Alejo. All right, great. You can't see, but I'm giving you a big thumbs up right now. <laughs> All right, great. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the How to Play Quidditch podcast. This show is sponsored by the San Francisco Argonauts. Go Knots! Sorry, Curse, you're screwed now. That's right. <laughs> okay. Don't be afraid of all fourteen of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. You're gonna get lots of minutes. Uh, well, I was say, it's gonna be the easiest job I've had. Like trying to get everybody minutes sucks. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. It, well, if ever if you're trying to ration minutes, that that's I can imagine that being a fresh sort of hell. Um, we've never had that bit, problem. Yeah with the Spartans because we, we don't have enough people. It's just, all right, who, who can drag their ass back out there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, good times. Well, I want to thank Kevin for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I've enjoyed this greatly and I would love to have you on as a guest again, if you would enjoy that, which hopefully you would. Yeah, all right. Great. Signing off for uh, myself, Alejo Enriquez and for Kevin Olsey. I want to thank you for making it all the way through this podcast. Uh, until next time, I hope that you'll hear from us again soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. I'm so I'm so I'm so optimistic. I'm using two digit numbers to signify these episodes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that is that is cockiness, man. That's hubris. What's the line between optimism and arrogance, though? <laughs> uh, all right, I'm gonna email it to myself.